0: Welcome. This is the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. What's up, everybody? Joe McCall with the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. Really glad you're here. Got a special guest today on the show. His name is Tim Bratz or Bratz. I'm sorry, I should have have asked you in advance. I apologize. Uh, Good, all that sounds better. But anyway, um, we're going to be talking about apartment investing on this podcast today. But don't let that intimidate you or overwhelm you and don't shut us off because It's a lot easier than you think, and we're going to be talking about that with Tim today on this podcast. So I first wanted to just put a couple of things out there, get it out of the way. This is a podcast. We are on iTunes and Stitcher and um, Spotify, I think, (laughs) and Apple iTunes, and then Android, Google Play, and a bunch of other podcasting apps. So wherever you listen to this podcast at, share the love, subscribe to the show, Uh, leave us a comment and a review. I'd really, really appreciate it. We just surpassed over 500 reviews, which was so awesome and exciting. Appreciate all of you for doing that. Uh, So subscribe to the show and you can get all of our previous episodes at realestateinvestingmastery.com. And if that's too hard of a URL to remember, I have reimpodcast.com for realestateinvestingmastery.com. Dot com. So go to reimpodcast.com. We have transcripts of all of the shows, over 800 episodes of the show as well. A lot of good stuff there. I think soon what I'm going to do is put together like 100 of my most favorite of the best episodes and put them together and sell it or give it away or something like that on an MP3 player, which I think would be pretty cool. There are so many podcasts like iTunes. When you go to iTunes, it only shows that I have a... I've only been doing podcasts since 2018 because I have so many episodes, but I've really been doing it since 2011. And I love doing this show and I love interacting and talking to you all out there, interviewing great, awesome guests like Tim here that we're going to talk to in a minute. So, so if you like this show, go to iTunes and please leave a review. I'd really appreciate it. Second thing I wanted to say, this show was brought to you by my book. It's called Wholesaling Lease Options. You can get it for free. It's not very thick. You know, I, I often joke. Tim, I spent like six months writing this book. And when I got it from the printer, I was so discouraged and depressed because it's so thin, like <laughs> a quarter of an inch thick. I like, oh, I thought this was going to be at least an inch yeah. and a half thick or something. But uh, it's all good, like really good stuff in there. And mm-hmm. uh, you can get this book for free, guys, if you want to learn more about lease options. Just go to WLObook.com. book.com. Get the book. It's free. All killer, no filler and you just got to pay shipping and handling and send it out to you. Cool. All right, good. Get that out of the way. So Tim, welcome to the show. How are you, my
1: man? Man, excited to be here, Joe. I appreciate all the all the value you've always given. You've been giving a lot of value for a long time, man, and um, really appreciate you know everything that you put out there and all the content and uh, it's helped me in my real estate career. So, I'm That's excited to be here, awesome. buddy.
0: Awesome to hear I'm really glad to hear that we're uh, we're in the same mastermind well I was but you're still in it it's a good mastermind called collective genius mm-hmm. I only left because I was just traveling too much I had mm-hmm. no complaints but it's an awesome mastermind we were just talking about that mm-hmm. and uh, we met there and uh, just kind of reconnected recently through a mutual friend and I wanted to get you on the podcast to talk about apartments um, because it's you know a lot of people that listen to this show are doing wholesaling or they're, they're doing buy and hold, maybe a little bit of fix and flip. And apartments seem really intimidating to them. And I mm-hmm. wanted to get you on to talk about how, you know, it's not that bad, right? Right. And so you're not the first guest that I've had talk about apartments on this show, but I think it's super important. And uh, we're going to be talking to you about that. But first, can you give us a little background of your story? How did you get involved with real estate back in sure. the day?
1: yeah I mean uh high level I'm from Cleveland, Ohio originally. I actually still live in Cleveland, um, split my time within with South Carolina now, but yeah I mean I mean I'm from Cleveland when the market was going gangbusters last time, 03 to '07, I was going through college. Everybody's making money in real estate. If you had a pulse, you could make money in real estate, I had a pulse and I wanted to make money, so I got into real estate, right so yeah. uh, the 2007. I graduate, I move out to New York City. My brother lived out in New York and I find a real estate firm. It ended up being a commercial real estate brokerage. So I got my license and I brokered leases for uh, office and retail tenants and brokered a a small space. What year was this? 2008. Okay. Yeah, 2007, 2008. So going into 2008, before everything crashed, right? Right before everything crashed. And I brokered one or uh, three spaces. The first one I brokered was 400 square feet And it was in Greenwich Village of Manhattan, so cool, trendy area, but it's 400 square feet. We signed a lease for $10,000 a month on that space, 4% annual increases, 12-year term. And the landlord not only was going to make $2 million off of that space over the next 12 years, but they also had seven other retail spaces and 15 stories of apartments. I'm like... Holy cow, this concept of residual income occurred, right? You know, prior to that, I was always doing transactional stuff. So I'd trade my time for money. I'd have to go and, you know, uh, buy it or, or broker a deal or work for uh, compensation, trade it hourly, whatever that looked like. And uh, the concept of residual income just bit me. And I was like, I need to be on that side of the coin. I need to be owning real estate. So mm-hmm. I think, I think, um, I, I did what a lot of people do is like, I can't go and buy real estate because I don't have any money, right? And so I ended up um, deciding I want to be an investor, went through all the courses, all the events, all that kind of stuff, moved to South Carolina just for weather and went through that whole analysis paralysis phase. And then I was like, ah, let me just buy something. So I bought my first house on my credit card, did all the work to it, flipped it. And this is 2009 now, early 2009. And um, after the market had shifted and I'm in the worst real, real estate recession ever. And I don't even know what I'm doing. I'm punk 23-year-old kid at the time and making money in real estate. So did it again, did it again, got into wholesaling heavily, a lot of short sales, tried to do like short sale negotiations and loss mitigation, like that kind of okay. stuff. Or And what year was this? This is this is like 09, 2010, getting into yeah. that. And then um, and then I ended up you know wholesaling deals and I was going to people that said, Hey, listen, I have the money, but I don't have the bandwidth. I don't have the knowledge. I don't have the experience to go and take on an, a, a deal. So why don't you do the deal? You do all the work. I'll bring the money and we'll just figure out a way to split it all up. And so, man, I gave away probably 65, 70%. Oh, I I can tell you exactly 67% equity in my first 250 deals that I did just Hmm. to build a resume. I knew I had to get those deals under my belt. I knew I had to get the experience and understand what I was doing. And, um, Uh, During that process, I bought a couple of small apartment buildings and uh, realized that that met my long-term goals really well. It had the scalability that I was looking for. I can go and find a 30-unit apartment building and negotiate with one seller versus 30 single family sellers. Look at one roof versus 30 roofs. Drive to one location versus 30 locations. And because of that, it just met with my long-term goals. I know a lot of people, some of the best real estate investors and residential and everything across the country, but for me... I really like the idea of apartments and the scalability of it. And so
0: was it intimidating for you at first or just, it's just another deal with more zeros on it.
1: How did you it, look at it? Yeah. So I, I bought an eight unit building was the first building I ever bought. And I had a couple of duplexes and triplexes. So it didn't seem that, Overwhelming, right? It's just a couple more zeros, a couple more tenants. When I got into another eight unit, and then I got to do a 16 unit and a 23, and I grew organically okay. and kept on building up my portfolio. And then I had, you know, about a 30 unit. And I had this 30 unit was the crown jewel of my entire operation, the Santa Maria of all of my ships, right? And and the thing where was this? Where were these units at? Burns down, right? Cleveland, Ohio. Okay. So you're still in Cleveland. Yeah. So I was I was in New York, moved to Charleston, moved back to Cleveland okay. I got married. Right. And um, I've been in Cleveland for about seven years now. Okay, cool. Um, so I'm still in Cleveland and I'm buying apartment buildings up here. That partnership with those guys that I was giving up 67% of the equity to um ended up fizzling out. So just life happens. We decided to liquidate the portfolio, um liquidate Well, 100.
0: what talk about what happened there? Because that's that's I think that might be an important part of your story, don't you think?
1: Uh it's a vi- yeah. Yeah. Uh So, just, so, so sure what, what happened? wanted to get on this. So so here's the thing. Um when before partnership is created, you know you sit down with a turn and you talk through all these all these circumstances and what could happen and what happens. Somebody gets hit by a bus or wins the lottery or life at ha- whatever, and and you think you can put all those things in place. The reality is just things change. You know sometimes people lose money and, and, and a certain side of them comes out, God forbid you make money. You know, they can get re- even nastier. Right. Um, and then, and then, you know, you get married or you have kids or somebody moves and the, the responsibilities or, or things shift. And, um, and that's just kind of what, what happened. And, uh, you know, I, I don't want to get too deep into it, but essentially they told me I'd get a salary and some other stuff. And, um, uh, they ended up taking that salary away. It wasn't a lot. It was like three grand a month. I was broke. You know, when I was, uh, early on when i first started partnering up with them and uh, then that that ended up being taken away and then my wife got pregnant so now i'm like scrambling to find some money to pay my bills and then like we made money on paper but they wouldn't make any distributions uh in order to cover our tax liabilities. so if i made a hundred thousand dollars on paper i never received any of that money but i was still responsible for paying taxes on that money and it was a, a very very stressful time um and i don't know if it was like intentional they were trying to just kind of keep me you know knocked down but meant for me it just didn't work so i ended up getting my broker's license again kind of brokering and doing some wholesaling and investing outside of the state because i had to not compete with them locally and i was making money and 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 it was just it just then they they wanted 67 percent of like my brokering commissions right like i was like listen man now you're trying to take away from my family and all that kind of stuff so it just didn't it it wasn't a congruent relationship where they were where i was and um so it was more of
0: a partner difference, not the deals were bad. I mean, there were decent deals. No, we,
1: we had amazing deals. We never lost money. I, I, I yeah. took a, uh, They probably invested about a million dollars over three, four years. And uh, we had a portfolio, I don't know, 150 units, probably worth, I mean, today they'd be worth a lot more. They'd be worth seven and a half million bucks. But when we liquidated everything about three, four years ago, they were probably worth, I don't know, three or four million dollars. Like we'd probably sold so- it all for around three, three and a half million. Talking to
0: your old self back then, what would you have told yourself then to do it, how to do it differently? Does that
1: make sense? Yeah. So, uh, you know, it was one of those things, I think from a mental standpoint, we're all told we got to go pay our dues. We got to go do the, put in the work. You got to earn it and, uh, you know, burn both ends of the of the candle and do all these things. And um, I remember sitting across from these business partners of mine early on when we first struck the deal and said, Hey, all right, let's partner up. And I was in a very vulnerable position because it was the, the brokest I've ever been. I had 25 grand in credit card debt. I had 65 bucks in my bank account. I was paying for gas out of the uh, cup holder of my car. And uh, this, this, is 20 August of 2012. We're talking August of 2019. So seven years ago. And um, it's really hard to negotiate when you're coming from a, from a position of weakness, right? And they're coming from a position of power. And I remember sitting across the table at their house. They were out in New York at the time. And uh, the one guy goes, hey, man, I, I'm really looking forward to this partnership. And I'm looking forward to being able to you know, sit across the table from you and see you as an equal in the future at some point. And I was like, I understand what he meant, like a financial equal. But I was like, dude, I'm, I'm a human being, right? Just like you. Like, like, what do you mean I'm not equal to you? And and it, and it maybe planted a seed that I needed to earn it, right? I, I didn't I wasn't worth it, right? And I was going through real estate waiting for somebody else to tell me that I'm, that I'm anointed worthy and Hey, you deserve success. You deserve to make money and going through that, you know, and and then, and then they start taking salaries away and then they tell me I can't do this and can't do that and all this other stuff. And I don't know if it was trying to suppress me or whatever, but because I was having success in other endeavors, I started posturing up a little bit more. I started understanding the value that I brought to the table versus the value that they brought to the table. Um, and then I played into a mastermind. I think masterminds are, Uh, if there's something I told myself when I was 22 years old, when I first started buying real estate, I'd say, join a mastermind, you know, get around people who are doing deals and active, uh, have experience uh, who are more there to support you than to tear you down. And, um, I joined a mastermind in 2015. And they're like, man, what are you doing? Like, you're, you're capable of so much more. And I, I needed a little bit of that inspiration, somebody to breathe that into me. And eventually, I was like, dude, you know what? You're right. Like, why not me? Why am I waiting for somebody else to tell me uh, when I can be successful? Like, I need to declare that. And there was a point where, you know, we just kind of butted heads and we decided, we, we both lawyered up. It was very, very ugly for a few oh, weeks. It got really nasty, super stressful. Yeah. And, um, but, you know, we got, we got reasonable and we said, hey, listen the only people getting rich here are going to be the attorneys. So why don't we sit down, hash this thing out. And we ended up figuring out a split that made everybody happy. We liquidated all of our properties over the next nine, 12 months. And um, one of those things where, you know, you think it's going to be a setback for you, but the reality is it was such a set up. Right. And I had such a weight lifted off my shoulders and I was able to go and build the relationships that I couldn't build before. Other people coming to me and saying, Hey man, I got money. I'll put money with you. And I was like, listen, these guys believed in me when nobody else did, and I'm, I'm, I'm uh, loyal to them. And telling all these people that I can't do business with them, and then it, it was able to open up some opportunities when that partnership, you know, dissolved. So I was able to uh, meet some other people, got into building my portfolio again, got into turnkey. Man, I opened a management company, and built it up to be one of the largest in Greater Cleveland, and uh, started building apartments again. And two years ago, I looked at my portfolio or I looked at my net worth. You know, I'm taking a break and it was actually August of 2017. Got a lake house up in upstate New York and just kind of hanging out there with the family. And I'm looking at where am I spending my time versus where am I building my net worth? And 90% of my net worth was built through my apartments, my, my part-time passive holdings. And it was 10% of my time that it was taking up. And I'm like, Man, what if I dedicated all my resources and my team to just going after apartments? And uh, and that's what I did. I, I just said, hey, instead of flipping houses, instead of flipping turnkey single family acquisition guy, you're gonna only look at apartments now. My project manager, who is renovating houses, you're gonna be renovating apartment units. My dispositions guy, who is selling houses, I'm gonna say, hey, you're gonna be managing the management company. And it was a small pivot for our business, but made a massive impact uh from a mindset perspective. And um, Man, I I'll tell you, like, the next deal that came down our our our, uh, came across our table was an eleven unit apartment building. We ended up wholesaling it because it needed a lot of work, Um, but we made eighty seven thousand dollars on it. Boom, you know. And I'm like, oh my goodness, why didn't we do this sooner? And I just did it again, did it again, did it again. And Joe, my my model is no different than when I was flipping houses. You you know, most people have the model. I got to be all in for sixty five percent of the after repair value, right? My model is the exact same thing with apartments. You just add zeros. So like you were saying before, instead of being um, a $100,000 house, I'm talking about a $10 million building and I'm all in for 6.5 million bucks. I buy it, renovate it. I'm all in. And then instead of selling that property, I hold everything. Everything I do is for residual and passive income today. And so I'll I'll, uh, refinance that property at maybe a 70 or 75% loan to value loan cash out all my investors, and then it's only house money in play, right? It's non-recourse loan. It's long-term debt, fixed interest rates. There's none of these clawbacks and stuff that you have in, in the residential side. So uh, as it increases my net worth, I actually increase my my safety net that kind of comes with it too, because I don't have all the personal liability that that I had when I was doing single family.
0: So can you tell us real quick, um, to give us a context of where you are today. Um, how many doors do you own manage how much value do you have in these apartment buildings
1: sure so we only manage what we own uh okay. we don't we don't manage anything for anybody else anymore we actually sold the third party management off but currently as of today i actually talking to you after i just left the the bank from sending a wire um i'm at 3207 units as wow. of today 95 percent of that is apartments i have a few small office buildings and a couple of vacation rentals uh everything else is is apartments and um Portfolio value is around $250 million, and our total debt, including our investor debt, is $150 million. So, uh, again, it goes back to the all-in for 60% of the after-repair value. So we have about, about $100 million of equity. Now, it's not all mine. I have a couple partners, and, and some deals I own 20% of, some other deals I own 80% of, uh, or somewhere in between. So, But my, you know, my net worth is significant, multiple eight figures, and it's all because of apartments. And, and I built the whole portfolio in the past 48 months four years. But Get I had,
0: I had experience,
1: right? I've done it before. And it's one of those things where, Hey, you can take it all away from me. I can do it again, even faster. And that's what happened when I had to liquidate my portfolio four years ago, I knew how to do it. And I knew that I could just go and do it again. And so I was, I had the ambition to do it bigger and do it better. Are all these apartments in Ohio? No, I'm in uh, Ohio, South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, Texas, and Oklahoma. Okay, cool. And so anywhere that I, that I invest, I have a local partner. You know, you talked about CG. We know some of the best operators in the entire country. Uh, I'll go there and say, hey, so-and-so is in Oklahoma or so-and-so is in Texas or so-and-so is in Georgia, and I'll bring them on as kind of like the, my, my local partner, joint venture partner. I'm not big on getting married across your business to everybody because of the partnership that fell apart. But I love joint venturing on a deal by deal basis because everybody knows what the responsibilities are. And if everything, if anything goes South, you can liquidate that single property and it doesn't derail the rest of your, of your portfolio.
0: Okay. Very good. I want to ask you a little bit. You said earlier you joined a mastermind. Um, When did you do that? Did you, did you join the mastermind after you were already successful doing a bunch of deals or was it kind of as you were before or when do you recommend to people to join those kind of
1: high level masterminds? Well, I think there's different levels of masterminds, right? Like CG, you can't even get into unless you're doing 50 deals a year, but there's other, Masterminds you can get into if you're doing, lo- I wouldn't say lower level, but if you're doing smaller numbers, right? You're doing 12, 15, 20 houses a year, that's still good. You should still join a mastermind. And then as you graduate and just start doing more deals or building more business or need more resources to do to grow in that capacity, there's different groups that have helped me grow in different uh, capacities. And so um, I think as soon as possible, you get into one. But I got into it in 2000, it was February of 2015 the year before was my first year ever making six figures. So in 2014 I was brokering and, um, uh, made about $130,000. I want to say in 2014 and, and I get invited out to this mastermind. The guy's like, it's five grand just for the day or two for a two day. And uh, I'm like, okay, I come out to that. And I was a solo act at that time. Like I, I, I had a couple of maintenance guys that would run around to some buildings and, and do some fix up. But for the most part, I was doing everything myself. And he's like, yeah, you got you to gotta, um, hire an assistant ASAP because you're just banging your head against the wall. I was like, oh man, yeah, I do need to do that. I was like, but that's you know, $40,000 a year in my town. He's like, no, it's not 40 grand. It's like three grand a month. You, know? you pay three grand a month. If it doesn't work out for a month or two, you risk five, $6,000. Just try it out. I was like, all right, all right, fine, I'll do it. And he goes, oh, by the way, and you got to join my mastermind. It's not a $30,000 a year. I was like, what? You just, I made 130 grand. You just spent 55% of my money, right? By coming this weekend. And uh, you know what happened? The next 10 months, I made $400,000 because of the things that I learned in that mastermind, the connections I made through that mastermind and um, you know, doing the things that they told me to do. And And what's important to understand about masterminds is you think you go once and hey, I'm all set. There's different levels in life, different levels in business. And as you reach different levels, there's a different level of problems that comes with it. And oh, so, it's important, so true. it's important to plug in on a quarterly basis and, and go and get the insight and say, hey, there's my number one struggle right now. Okay, here, let's, let's help you push through that ceiling because we know there's going to be another ceiling in another three months. Let's get you through this one and then come back and we'll, we'll work on your next problem or your next issue or your next struggle. And so- Well, the um, other huge thing about involved, this- man.
0: Oh yeah. Well, the the other big thing is you see the mistakes that other people make, and it, they help you avoid those same costly mistakes, don't they? Mm-hmm. If you see so time. and so doing something similar but at a bigger scale,
1: <clears throat> you learn from the, the 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 road that they've already been on, don't you? My my business model is completely crafted off of what other people did or didn't do in the last economic downturn, and I and I remember looking back and I remember talking and I and I've had so many very successful people who have been through multiple downturns, upturns, all that kind of stuff. I say, Hey, poke holes in this. You've been, you've been in the industry for 40 years. You've seen economic cycles, like poke holes in this. And it all comes back to the people who make it like we're at a peak of a, of a market right now. Right? So, Regardless of where we are in that, we're somewhere near the top and everything's cyclical. It will come down. It will go back up. But you just have to be prepared for it. If you know what you're doing and you know how to navigate that, you're going to be okay. And, And for me, I remember looking back and talking to investors from the last downturn and the ones who got wiped out were all buying for speculative real estate. They buy at a retail price. And then they would hope that it went up to this value tomorrow. And when it didn't go up in value tomorrow and they bought at a retail price and actually came down in value, then they're underwater. They end up losing everything and uh, their net worth that was on paper wasn't worth the paper it was written on Um, versus the other investors who were able to ride out that storm. They were buying stuff for cash flow. And regardless of what happened to values, they had enough cash flow coming in that could cover their operating expenses, cover their debt service, and put a couple bucks in their pocket on a monthly basis. So even if it took a year or two years or five years for the market to come back, they're okay waiting that out because they, they weren't sitting on a non-performing asset right? and coming out of their pocket every month to cover that, that uh, uh, expense. So not only that, but they were the only ones that were really bankable. When the market did shift and banks shut off lending to everybody except for the people with big balance sheets and the people who had passive income, residual income coming in. And so, um, yeah, I mean, my business model is by B class area apartments, workforce housing. We'll buy an A class areas too, but we won't do luxury when the market's good. Everybody can afford A and B class workforce housing. When the market shifts, all those luxury runners move into more workforce type housing. And, um, and so we stay full. I don't get into the, the lower level, the lower end stuff, um, War zones or anything like that. I don't want anything to do with that. It, it, your properties get beat up. They're, they're, uh, there's too much turnover there. And although on paper the numbers look good, long term, which is what I'm in this for, uh, B class kind of apartments are are what what works the best.
0: That's awesome. I want to ask you a question about Grant Cardone. This guy has been around for a little while, you know, but can you believe he's like sixty something?
1: Yeah, he's, yeah he's, I think he's mid-60s, isn't he? Yeah. Mid, early 60s, 61,
0: 62. Um, he's been preaching and harping on the apartment and bandwagon for a long time. Uh, live where you rent and rent where you own. So what do you think about what he talks about and teaches regarding owning a big apartment buildings and stuff like that? Are you on the same page? or?
1: So, so one, I love that he uh, promotes wealth, financial stewardship, being a good steward of capital, um, buying assets. I I think there's a lot of things that align with my mentality with, uh, with Grant Cardone and and what he teaches. Um, I think he's a little bit abrasive sometimes. I don't think you need to be, but you know, polarizing people like polarizing uh, personalities. So uh, there's a little bit of that. My, my biggest issue with how he buys is um, he buys luxury, right? And he buys, retail priced, luxury properties. Now he can, because he's really, really cheap access to capital. You know, he's paying people 5%, 6%, whatever on their money with, through Cardone Capital. And, and, but here's, here's his play that a lot of people aren't seeing, um, is that Grant Cardone is in the fee game. He takes, he has a fund where he takes a fund management fee. He makes money from managing the fund. Okay. Then he takes an acquisition fee, on a big apartment building. So he wants to buy higher, more expensive, more retail price stuff because he takes fees, on all these things. Then he takes an asset management fee as the, as everything moves along. So he's in the fee game. And I I, I don't want to say it's like boiler room, right? Like you think boiler room and you think Wolf of Wall Street, you're like, we're taking, taking home cold, hard cash, you know, via commissions. Like, like (laughs) that's the, that's what I think about when I, when I see people who are in the fee game. Um, not that like that's traditional syndication though. That's most syndicators do that. I don't do that because it was never, I never read a book on syndication. I never read a, uh, went to a seminar on how to buy apartment buildings. I, I learned it all through the school of hard knocks. And so I started structuring deals just the way that I would want it to be structured if I was on both sides of the coin. Right. Do, so the does way, Grant
0: have some ownership in these
1: apartments too? Yeah. So, so traditional syndication is he sponsors the loans but they're non-recourse loans. So if the bank ever... Uh, had to take that property back. Their only recourse against a non-performing loan is the property itself. They can't go after him personally. So that's why, and and you cannot get non-recourse loans unless the property is stabilized, meaning it's over 90, 95% occupancy. But there's no motivated sellers of people who have 95% occupied apartment buildings in luxury A-class areas. So you have to buy it. He's backed into a corner where he has to buy uh, at a retail price. What are the risks in that? Well, the, the risk is what happens in five years from now. Now, maybe he's got longer term notes. Maybe he's got a 10-year note. But if it's five years from now, I don't know. Do his investors want their money in for 10 years? I don't know. I don't know what the commitments are that that his investors make. But most of the time, the investors are told five years, right? So I'm talking traditional syndication. My model is very different. But for traditional syndication, if you're looking at five years and you're looking at a deal and you're buying it here at the top of the market and you're paying retail price at the top of the market and we're going into an election year. And four four years after that, we're going to go to another. We could have five, three different presidents over the next five years, right? There's a lot of political uncertainty. There's a lot of economic uncertainty. There's a lot of trade uncertainty. There's a lot of things going on that can shift over the next five years. And if you think like the I, I, people send me deals all day, every day, right? And they send me projections that the property is going to they're going to buy it here and it's going to appreciate five percent every year for the next five years. It's not realistic. It's just not not realistic I think there's gonna be a curve like interest rates will go up even if nothing else happens with the economy but interest rates go up by a point or two you're back at break even if even if the property does stabilize and then you still can't do anything you got to sell it for what you're into it for and you can't refinance it because you know you're you're into it for more than what the loan amount can give you so
0: so the risk is the private investors take their capital out and you you're stuck with the building you can't refinance it with the bank.
1: Well, I'm sure he's a smart guy and says they can't take their capital out until some sort of capital event occurs on his side. So until he sells or until he refinances, their money's stuck in play. So they can't call, it's not like calling a loan due um, like on the residential side where you could just say, hey, uh, it was supposed to be paid back after five years. It's still not. Usually the documents say, if, if we didn't sell the building or we didn't refinance the building after five years, your money's just still in play and you just have to sit on it, right? So there's not risk really from that regard. It's more of, um, you know, what is his loan? What What are his loan terms? If he does have to refinance in five years or seven years, I think that's a little bit risky. Um, I don't. I don't think Grant Cardone does. I. I, I think he puts on ten-year debt, which, if you bought in two thousand six at the peak, even if you went through the Great Recession by twenty sixteen, you're pretty much back. So you're pretty safe. That's why I put long-term debt on all my stuff. Um, I always do fixed interest rates, so that what way. What is long?
0: What is long-term debt? How many years is that?
1: So in in commercial, it's usually ten to twelve years, and you can get longer, but the interest rates then start jumping up.
0: And then what do you have to do after that point? You got to refinance. You got to sell. What if you can't?
1: you give it back to the bank.
0: So obviously another risk could be vacancies, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, very Um, much so, especially in luxury. So all of a sudden the market does shift or the economy shifts and jobs are lost and people can't afford a $4,500 a month apartment unit now. And now they start moving into a $1,500 a month apartment, more in a workforce housing area. Uh, What happens to all those, all those units? Well, uh, I mean, I mean, For me, I'm all in at 60 cents on the dollar. Usually, my break even is I need to maintain about a 65% occupancy at the same time. So, everything above 60%, about 40% goes towards my operating expenses for my buildings, 25% goes towards my debt service, and everything over 65% occupancy is pure gravy in our pocket. But that's me buying at 60 cents on the dollar. He's buying at 100 cents on the dollar, right? So, And if you're in that situation, you need to make sure that the property is performing. Otherwise, you can't cover your expenses and your debt service. And um, it, what I happens have- if the market shifts? He gives everything back. He, there's no, he, got, he already got his commissions off the table, right? He's already got his asset management fees. He's already got his fund management fees. It's really his investors that are caught holding the bag that lose all their money because it's a non-recourse loan. There's potential. I'm not saying that he's doing this, but... Um, if you watch enough American greed and stuff, this is what happens in the past is well, they buy it with other people's money and then uh non-recourse loan and their investors are caught holding the bag and they go and buy properties when the market shifts uh, with their own cash.
0: Which goes all to say the importance of the fundamentals, right? Making sure you're, you have enough room to weather the downturn because it will come again. It may mm-hmm. not be as severe as what we saw before, but it will happen again and you'll get vacancies and, um, But I remember in 2002, I was working for a contractor here. They moved me down, maybe it's 2003, and they moved me down to Dallas, Texas for a summer. And uh, Dallas at that time was coming kind of out of a housing recession. Maybe it was a result of the dot-com bubble when it burst, you know, in 99, 2000. But I remember hearing everybody was talking about back then, the large apartment builders and owners, developers were really, really struggling and hurting. And I remember when we were looking for an apartment, when we were living down, because it was short term, um, there were, I remember seeing so many uh, advertisements and inducements or incentives for finding new tenants, right? Like Mm -hmm. two months free, three months free rent or whatever. And I remember thinking it was a very, um, I remember hearing people talk about it was a very, a tenant friendly time that they were in, right? You get a nice apartment for a lot cheaper than what it used to be. Yep. So, looking back, if you talk to people in, in, in back in the days when we did have recessions and apartment owners were really struggling, what was it that got them in trouble back then? Is
1: it the same thing you're, you're kind of talking yeah, about here? It, it, it goes back to what is your cost basis? The hard thing with building apartments or building anything right now is because cost of construction is so high and it was pretty high back then too. So, the only thing that justifies building is luxury housing because that's the only thing where you can make the numbers work. The issue with luxury housing is it gets hit first when, when a market And it was probably ahead. overbuilt. And it was right. overbuilt, right. And there's not enough density and, and um, demand, demand for, yeah, for it. And so you, you just have to be aware of the statistics. You got to be aware of what's going on. Uh, and at the same time, though, like I, I do buy in some areas that aren't on a growth cycle and they're just kind of flat. Like I live in a A-class one of the best school districts in all of suburban cleveland ohio right and a phenomenal community and it's got a stagnant population for 15 years but that doesn't mean it's not a good area right a good area to invest it's still highly in demand and at the end of the day man you just need to have nicer building or nicer units than the place next door you know to attract the best tenants and so if you're buying at a low enough cost basis which is to me that's the number one rule in real estate it's not location 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 to me it's wholesale 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 always buy at a wholesale price and that gives you options when you have options to hold on to it and let it rent sell it refinance it seller finance it lease option like there's there's a lot of options when you're at a low enough basis on these things or i could drop my rent by by 20 percent And smoke the guy next door the competition and still have just as nice or a nicer unit attract the best quality tenants who pay their rent every month and that's my model my model is to not charge a premium just to have the nicest units with the best management in place that takes care of the tenant screens the tenants properly uh, has good people good amenities and on a low enough basis where i don't have to charge a premium in order to get good quality tenants in there i just want the best people who are going to stay the longest
0: you and I both know some people and I won't talk names that are doing something similar to what you're doing they're buying apartments and they're finding other people to partner with them. Um do these other folks that you see doing this right now have that same approach that you have that you're talking about that's that same safety net
1: that you're talking about There there's not a lot of people who are buying at wholesale prices. Obviously we're all trying to get a deal. <clears throat> um, you know I I have I'm just very, very active in social media. I'm very active in, uh, I do some coaching type stuff. Um, and so people bring me deals, right? And I've been around long enough where now I have relationships with brokers where I'm one of the top five people that could phone call. Like I'm probably one of the, if not the top, definitely in the top three buyers in all of Georgia uh, for apartment buildings. And so I own so much stuff down in Georgia that everybody calls me and my partners first down there. And when, you, when you're when you on that list, that's awesome because you get first crack, first rip at these things, and you're known for performing on deals. If you don't have that type of reputation, the broker's not going to bring you deals. The broker, think about it, wants to earn both sides of the commission. So they're going to keep it as a pocket listing. It's not like residential where you have to list it. They can sit on it for three months if they wanted to. And they're just going to call the top 10 buyers in town. So when you see a deal that hits the market through a broker in your town, it's usually a crappy deal because the top 10, 15 buyers all said no to it right? So you, you understand the logic behind that. <clears throat> I mean, we still make offers on, with, on things that are on the market, but we'll go in at, at after six months and we'll go in at like 50 cents on, on of what they're asking. And I'm not, I'm not afraid to, you know, people tell me go kick rocks or whatever. Uh, sure, sure. I, I'm, I'm more of a, a sorting mentality. It's sort through different deals. If it doesn't mate, I mean, we'll still make, we make offers on everything. If you don't swing the bat, You can't hit a home run. So we make offers on everything that comes across our plate. Some of it sticks, most of it doesn't. It's more of just a numbers game. And we find deals the same way that I found deals in the residential realm. So how are you finding deals? You're driving for dollars, you're dialing for dollars, you're doing direct mail, but there's different nuances instead of sending postcards to a landlord I'm gonna send like a a nice book and a handwritten letter because they own 10,000 units locally, and I'm gonna say, "Hey, I know I know what you got going on. I I know you're probably in acquisition mode, like a lot of us are. But if there's anything that's smaller that you're trying to get rid of or in areas that you don't want to be in anymore, let me know. I am sitting on some cash, and uh, I'd be willing to take it off your hands. And at least developing those relationships because I'm gonna be in this for a while, right? I'm not going anywhere, and I know I, I I have some time on my side, so." I want to develop those relationships now versus later, and I want to get their attention. So I'll send them a DVD, I'll send them a um, a book, I'll send them you know a nice bottle of wine, something like that, nice bottle of whiskey, in order to just develop that relationship with local landlords. The other thing that's really cool is, or one of the ways that we've we acquired a lot of buildings is I'm from the residential realm. I will, I will drip emails every week to my residential buyers list, my residential brokers, my residential. Contractors, vendors, everybody, right? Everybody was on that list, and I'll say, "Hey, I'm sitting on cash, and I, I need some apartment buildings. Send me everything you've got." And a flood of emails come in. What I realized is residential investors have zero idea how to underwrite an apartment building. so they but they come across those leads, but they just discard them. So mm-hmm. if they know somebody who buys apartments now and they know somebody who's credible, who closes on deals when they say that they're going to close, they're going to start sending them deals and I'll sign a fee agreement. I'll pay them a commission, whatever that looks like. And um, uh, all of a sudden I have uh, an army of residential wholesalers, investors, brokers, flippers, whatever uh, that where they're not competition. Now they're actually on the same side of the table as me. We're on, we're, we're teammates, we're team members. And we're able to do some deals together.
0: That's really cool. Really good. Have you done any kind of internet marketing targeting apartment
1: owners? Nope. Have I, I literally, anybody I literally doing that? spend zero money on marketing. I have, I have a few okay. you know groups and and uh, whatever, uh, subscription agreements on some different websites that cost me a few hundred bucks a month, but I don't spend money much money on marketing and advertising. I've done it all organically through my, my email database, through my social media, and, um, and then through some coaching stuff that I'm doing now too. I wonder
0: if you could... Do you know anybody that's doing internet marketing, social media marketing to find apartment owners?
1: So uh, yeah, I've had, I've had some, like we, we have, you know, my partners, um, that, you know, in my yeah, education yeah. side of things, yeah. they are some of the best, you know, marketers and, uh, they, they know a lot of this stuff. So you could absolutely. and And here's a really exciting thing about apartment buildings. Like in residential, I had to market to private money lenders. I had to market to sellers. I had to market to buyers. And when you own apartment buildings, all three of those people can be the same person. So you can develop a funnel for buyers, funnel for sellers, funnel for investors, private money lenders in commercial real estate, and they're all the same person. Meaning I'm today, I bought 500 units today. I also am listing 150 units that are smaller, just in areas that I don't want to manage anymore. And they're, they're more of a time suck for my team. Uh, But it could be a great deal for somebody else. Right. And at the same time I raise money and passively invest in other people's projects. So I fall into all three of those buckets and it just kind of depends on timing. Like I I know, I know this guy who's got 6,000 units and I hit him uh, locally here in Cleveland. I said, Hey man, what do you got going on? Are you trying to sell anything? I'd love to take some things off your plate. He said, "No, nah, man, I'm just in acquisition mode. Great. He goes, Hey, if you got deals, I'll bring you money, right? So I can <laughs> I can wholesale a deal to him. I can joint venture on a deal with him. I can lend borrow money from him. There's a lot of different things you can do. So if you can build the funnel of of that group of people, everybody, you know, they, they all kind of overlap, just depends on timing. So it would be pretty easy to do. To spend some money, spend a couple bucks, and just do some online marketing and some targeted, uh, you know, retargeting, whatever, on some of that online stuff, and just approach all three of those buckets and see which one gets you the best response. And then from there, you can utilize that for people who to sell you can, who can sell you deals, people who can buy deals from you, and people who can joint venture or uh, or lend money That's to cool. you. Good, good.
0: All right. So, what would you tell Tim, the beginner, the guy who's wholesaling, you know, three four deals a month? and uh, wants to get into bigger deals, where do you tell them to
1: start? Um, so, So one thing that I wouldn't do is get too ambitious, especially at the top of a market cycle, right? I wouldn't switch my entire business model at the top of a market cycle. I would stockpile some cash and find a local person that you can partner up with, lend them money, become an equity investor and um, passively invest in those deals. You're going to learn that business while you stay inside your lane and keep on making money and generating Mm -hmm. revenue with, with what you're doing right now. That's probably the first thing that I would say. The reason of that is because I buy, I buy property from two types of people, typically. One is the mom and pop who've owned it for a long time. They sucked all the cash out, didn't put anything back in. Property's falling apart. They can only sell it. We come in, buy distressed, fix it all up. The other one is smart entrepreneurs, sometimes real estate entrepreneurs, sometimes bankers, sometimes you know mortgage brokers, sometimes you know, e-com experts, whatever. They're sitting on a bunch of cash. They have to deploy it somewhere. They're like, oh, I could just go and buy apartment buildings, but they, they don't have any experience. They don't have a joint venture partner who has experience. They don't know how to manage a management company. They don't know how to interview a management company. They don't know how to manage the property itself. And all of a sudden, they just get hit in the teeth hard, right? And um, I bought 700 units last summer from two guys making millions of dollars a year on, out of Wall Street. And they bought 700 units down in Georgia. Sucked like like just it it totally drained them for three years. They weren't making any money off these things. They were actually had to come out of pocket. They were like, "Listen, it's taking me away from where I'm making my real money." And they gave it to us. We bought 700 units for 10 million bucks, fifteen thousand dollars a unit in a B class area. Now we need to put another fifteen twenty grand in, but at the end of the day, I mean, I mean, we're we're all in for 35. Uh, we're starting to refinance the portfolio. It's five buildings. They're they're appraising for sixty seven thousand dollars a piece.
0: Each we're on for unit. 50,
1: each unit. So you, it's, it's insane. I mean, we're all into it for 25 million. It's worth, uh, uh, it's, it's looking like it's gonna be worth somewhere between 48 to $50 million. So th- th- great opportunity for me. It sucks for the entrepreneur who tried to get into apartments but didn't know what they were doing. So, you got to get educated, right? You got to, there's books out there, there's seminars out there, there's free online stuff, um, there's podcasts you can listen to on how to invest in commercial real estate. So, jump on some of those, get educated, and at least, you know, build that foundation. Number two is, I would stockpile cash and passively invest with an active operator who knows what they're doing just to get an idea of what that side of the coin looks like and what the returns can look like, see what the operation looks like. And now you have a couple of deals or a couple of units under your belt. It's going gonna, it's gonna to give you more posture for a bank to go out. Uh, you can go out and do this stuff on your own too. When, you work, when you're working with a private investor, how much do you let them in
0: on what you're doing? I know you, you give Holy them reports. You're fully transparent. You give them reports every quarter, monthly or whatever. Quarterly. But isn't there a point too where you're like, you know,
1: I, I, I'm super busy. I can't work with you yeah. that closely. I, you know what I I'm saying? Th- I think it's an expectation setting thing. Um, sure. There's some people who want to be more involved and some people who don't want to be yeah. involved. And so <clears> when, when we give them reports, like we, we give them everything on the front end. Like, so I, I'll put together like a three page investment summary with some pictures, like just letting them know high level what the deal is and what the returns look like then I'll give them a 75 page Financing package that we give to the banks with area demographics and and all the financials uh, for the past you know two years tax returns rent rolls they see everything pro forma projected uh, rents all that stuff aerial photos interior photos exterior photos like everything you could possibly want is is a deep dive into that document so they they're familiar if they ever want to go to the property I let them know let me know if I can be there great otherwise our joint venture partner will be there our, our local operating partner will be there to walk them around and then on a month or on a quarterly basis, we, we send a a report. That's usually, you know, a slide deck of a bunch of pictures along with, um, a couple page email, just saying, Hey, here's where we're at. Here's what we hoped over the past 90 days. Here's what we got done. Here's what we project over the next 90 days. And long-term we're still on path or we're still on target or we're ahead of whatever that looks like. So it's, uh, but you know, it's just kind of expectation settings. They know that I'm doing deals. They know that I got a lot of stuff on my plate. I don't get a lot of phone calls from investors, other than, dude, I got more money. Like, let's put it in play, right? And what I found is the more sophisticated the investor is, they're too, they're too busy to, to blow up your phone and to to bother you with some of that stuff. And I, I shouldn't say bother because you're getting educated, right? You're, you you want to know if I if I was going to go start a new business or invest in something, I want to know what the hell's going on. So I, it, they're not bothering me. But when I say that, I, I guess I mean. They're just too busy to get on the phone and even ask questions. It's it's yeah. wild. And and they know that I'm good for it. They know that I they want me to stay inside my lane and focus on doing getting this thing to the finish line versus let me go and take up a bunch of Tim's time, ask him a bunch of silly questions, you know?
0: Cool. What do you see in the future, Tim, for you? And also what do you see in the future for the next few years for the market?
1: Yeah. So um for, for me, I'm launching uh, an investment fund, a 506C investment fund, which is a general uh, solicitation. It's for accredited investors only. That should be launched on Monday next week, actually. We'll, we'll have the, the formal filing done with the SEC. So that's exciting. And I think building a fund is really what gets me excited in the next How level. have you so, done it in the past? And how is this different? So a 506B is another type of a fund. And it's a deal-by-deal it's deal fund for me. And so every deal that I've purchased... I create a 506B offering, which is just friends and family. So I'm not allowed to market on social media. I'm not allowed to market on billboards or TV or anything like that. I can only go out to people I have a pre-existing relationship with and uh, who have approached me or, or you know, I've talked to about doing deals. And so I'll reach out to them. We'll have a conversation. We'll hop on a webinar or whatever. I'll give them all the details and, um, and raise money that way. Now with a 506C I can post on Facebook, hey, here's the kind of returns, here's the kind of deals I'm doing, just finish this deal, here's what my investors made, and I could just shoot it all over, but I can only take accredited investors. Accredited investors make $200,000 a year as an individual or $300,000 as a married couple or have a net worth excluding their primary residence of over a million dollars. So that's the only people that can invest in my deals moving forward. But I have a lot of non-accredited investors for 506B because I have a prior existing relationship. You're allowed to take non-accredited investors on previous deals. So, um, cool. and hopefully they make so much money that they become accredited, right? And then yeah. they can get into some of these other things. So, uh, I'm excited about the fund. You know, the, the the short-term goal for me, I'm at $250 million of property and valuation right now. And I want to get to a billion dollars in property in the next uh, about 30 months. So two and a half years, end of 2021. So that's the short-term goal. And then eventually I want to get the fund up to a billion dollar fund that then can go buy $10 billion of property over the next decade. So that's kind of my goal. You know, do I need it? No, I don't need the money. Why you keep on doing it if you don't need the money? It's more for just like inspiring people. I think, you know, like how big can you build it? Like, let's just, just do it. I, if, I want people to say, Hey, this guy can have family and health and, and finances and all these things dialed in. Like if he could do it, I could do it. He's some punk kid that started when he was 23 years old out of Cleveland, Ohio. You kidding me? If he can do it, I'm going to get rich. Right? So uh, I, I like being able to inspire people and educate people and, um, uh, and that side of things. And so, you know, I don't know. It might, might come five years from now where I'm like, I'm okay. I'm just going to go pump the brakes and go and hang out for a little bit. But I'm, I'm actually a little bit excited that, you know, a slowdown or a cool off in the market may occur. Cause I think sellers are going to have a more realistic idea in their head about what they can actually, what the property is really worth. And, yeah. uh, it's going to kind of limit some of the competition. It's going to allow me to go buy more property, maybe at 50 cents on the dollar, maybe at 40 cents on the dollar. Who knows? I, th- I think there's going to be a lot happening in the market. If the market does shift, especially in the new construction stuff that's been built over the past couple of years. When those loans come due, if they got short-term construction loans that were only maybe five years and they can't refinance because values have cooled off and interest yeah. rates have gone up, that reduces the value of the property. And if that happens, I think there's going to be a lot of really nice buildings that come back on the market that that are bank owned. right? Yeah. So I'm, I'm kind of you know, you don't want to hope for it because that means people are losing money. At the same time, you know, I'm prepared to, if that does happen, acquire a lot of property at that time. Cool. Real quick, one more question.
0: What are some good books or podcasts that you're listening to reading right now?
1: Yeah. So I have Legacy Wealth Show is my, is actually my podcast. And we talk a lot about, it's not really, it's it's real estate centric, but mostly just about general wealth building, you know, making money, keeping money and getting your money working for you. Um, cool. uh, and making, making your money, make more money. Right. And so that's the general premise and along with having some harmony in life, uh, and your relationships and health and all those kinds of things. So we've gotten some, some really good feedback on that. So we're excited about that as far as, as, uh, books go, man, I, I love a book called 12 pillars by Jim Rohn. Uh, Jim Rohn is one of the foremost business philosophers, right? He's, he was Tony Robbins coach and a lot of the guys that are big, um, in the personal development space today uh, got their information from Jim Rohn. He's passed sure. away now, but he's got this simple book. It's about a hundred pages called 12 pillars and it's man, it's packed with profound principles on how to just live a good life and like what's important and, and a lot of that stuff. And so I read that book twice a year and um, it's powerful stuff. So that, and then, you know, I love all the, the classics like think and grow rich. I'm, re- I'm rereading uh, magic of thinking big by David Schwartz right now. Cool. Um from a from a personal finance standpoint, um, richest man in Babylon has made a massive impact on my life. Power, positive thinking, all those. So uh I love them all. Just subscribe to your
0: podcast. It's called Legacy Wealth, the Legacy Wealth Show by Tim Bratz. Uh you are just started doing this in May. Looks like yeah. is that right? Yeah. Cool. So we do about
1: an episode a week. Just been going on for for a few months now, and um, actually, you know, in June, I got hit in the mouth with a uh, with a golf ball going 100 miles ah. an hour. It shattered for, like no. my, my upper mandible, ripped my gums, knocked out four teeth. It's actually got it all cleaned up now. So, <laughs> holy smokes! <laughs> yeah, it was How? kind of crazy. So I was I was on a hiatus from the podcast for a little bit, but kind of pushed you through get on something. Hit with the
0: golf ball.
1: Yeah, it was a little bit, of, little bit of negligence on my part, standing a little bit ahead of the ball. At the same time, it was a really, really bad shot that went at a 45-degree angle. Uh, we were playing at a um, – it was at a mastermind, actually, in, in middle of June, and we were playing a scramble, and I was about 25 yards up, but at like a 45-degree angle, and uh, I'm not even looking, and the other guy's shooting, and so it went <sighs> boom, teeth. Everywhere it was mess. It was really, really bad. It was nasty. I, I just got a brace off uh, a couple of weeks ago that I had to wear for about six, eight weeks.
0: I can't imagine how bad that guy feels.
1: Yeah, who yeah, was
0: he, it? Who was it? Do I yeah. know him?
1: Uh, <laughs> his name's Austin Rutherford. He's a he's a wholesaler and a flipper out of Columbus. Really, really good dude. Real good buddy of mine. And um, still, he, he, he launched. Yeah, yeah he you know he sends me he sends me like cartons of snack packs and cartons of like baby baby pouches and a, a new blender oh and all sorts gosh. of stuff so he felt he felt bad but i uh, it was funny we were at like an event like a week later that they asked me to speak at and i actually went down to columbus and i spoke with all this crap and oh. contraptions and uh, i was like Austin had just released a book. Uh, he was releasing a book that day. It was called "From Valet to Millionaire," and he was he started out as a valet, started flipping houses, and now he's got a pretty significant net worth. And, um, and I was like, Austin, man, if I would have known this a week ago, when you hit me with the golf ball, like, like I, my back hurts a little bit right now. Yeah. Oh, 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 hey, man. My neck. Yeah. Oh, hey. yeah. So now he's he's uh he feels real bad about it. He's a great guy, and um, uh, but I, I'm I'm. Hey, I'm blessed that it wasn't worse than it was. I mean, if oh, this thing geez. would have hit an inch north, could have shattered my my eyeball socket, could have knocked my eyeball out. If you hit it with my temple, I'd be dead, you know? So or I, in I, your I throat. Feel,
0: it could have killed you. If it right. Hit your throat.
1: I feel incredibly blessed that it hit and not only knocked out four teeth instead of 14 teeth, you know? that. So uh,
0: lesson learned when you're at a golf course, stand behind. <laughs>
1: yeah. Behind. Not, not even at a 90-degree angle. Stand behind. Was he at um, uh, his tee shot? No, no. He, we were like in the middle of the fairway. I was on one side of the fairway. He was on the other side of the fairway. And um, yeah, it was just, it was a, he's very athletic, just a really terrible golfer, right? Oh, so that's, <laughs> slice the heck out of it, man. And it was, uh, it was, but hey, uh, listen to this. I, we, they take me back to the clubhouse, right? And there's two dentists dining in the clubhouse. And so they, they, they fixed way. me up. They're like, hey, we got to go, man, to my office. They drop whatever they were doing. They take me over to their office. They stitch me all up. They call their buddy who drops what he's doing on a Friday night to come out and put my teeth back in and put this brace on. So, like, uh, I mean, I mean, as, as awful of an incident as it was, like, I'm insanely grateful that a lot of other things lined up as it did. So, <sighs>
0: That's, tr- that's scary. Yeah, I know.
1: <laughs> anyway, Tim, it's been good to
0: have you on the show. How else can people get in more information about you? Um, do you have a website? Any yeah. books that you want to give away?
1: Yeah, I mean, my, my website's legacywealthholdings.com. I do I do some coaching and stuff. If you guys have inter- any interest in that, it's more formal. It's not for newbies necessarily, but um, there's a lot of people who come out that say, Hey, I want to be an active investor. I'm trying to scale up into more holding of apartments and commercial real estate. That's great. And there's other people who are like, listen, dude, I got access to cash. Let me just kind of, uh, put it in play with, 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 some good operators and you'll network and meet some, some of the best in the, in the country. So, um, that's commercial empire, commercial com, and okay. I'm pretty active on social media. So I know you and I are connected obviously. And if you guys want to connect with me on, on Facebook, it's where I'm, I'm most active and, um, yeah, hit me up. would love to connect and you got questions or whatever send me a message on facebook i'm the one who answers all my messages uh, uh so i'll actually respond to you it might take me a couple days but um yeah i mean i mean i love connecting and then meeting people who are making some really cool things happen nice so commercial mm-hmm. and
0: LegacyWealthHoldings.com. very cool and um I think that's good. Again, go to realestateinvestingmastery.com if you want to get the show notes, the transcript of this podcast even. And if you didn't have time to write down those links that we just gave you, we have all of that in the show notes at realestateinvestingmastery.com. Tim, it's been uh, it's been a great podcast. I, enjoy, I enjoyed it. I appreciate you sharing everything that you did. Thank appreciate you so it, much. Man.
1: Joe, thanks for having me, buddy. And again, thank you for all the value you put out there. So uh, excited to stay connected, buddy.
0: Hey, I think I'm going to be on your podcast too, aren't I? Yep. yep. I, we have I it. are connecting
1: like, in like two weeks on that. Yes. Good. Good.
0: I'm looking forward to be on your show. Yeah. Take care. Be awesome. See you guys. Bye bye.